Well, I'd like for us this evening then to open up again to Luke chapter 15. So Luke chapter 15, we'll go ahead and we'll read the whole chapter again tonight. This is the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that is Jesus, to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she is founded, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Give me my inheritance. In other words, so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Where were all those friends now that he had? Gone. But when he came to his senses, literally when he came to himself, he was out of his mind, you see. Sin forces a person out of their mind. But when they return to themselves... It says, when he returned, when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Take me back as a servant. That's all I ask. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I believe his father was watching for him, hoping, waiting, longing for his return. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Very uncouth thing for a Jewish father to do, to run, because you'd have to hitch up your garment in order to run. And he would have to pull up his garment, take off, which is a very uncouth thing to do, (laughs) unsophisticated thing to do if you were a Jewish father 
but he did it. How could he not? He ran, embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, don't you love this? He couldn't even get out his whole speech because he was, he was going to say, Father, make me as one of your hired servants. He couldn't even get to that part. The father cuts him off. He doesn't want to hear his I'm sorry speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but, all right, the father just comes in there. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. Notice that word had. It's not optional when a son, when a prodigal son returns. We had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. Well, on Sunday we considered what has been called the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the wastefully or recklessly extravagant son, here in Luke fifteen eleven through thirty two. But instead of focusing on the prodigal himself, we focused instead on his older brother, who tends to not get as much attention as the prodigal does. And as I said on Sunday, I think it's unfortunate that he doesn't get as much attention because Jesus' point in this parable is that there is not just one lost son, but two. They express their lostness in different ways, but they were both equally lost and in need of God's grace. And we miss out on some key teaching related to understanding the lost condition of sinners when we neglect the older brother. On top of that, it's unfortunate that the older brother doesn't get more attention because I think it's clear from Luke 15 itself that Jesus actually intends for the confrontation with the older brother to be seen as the climax of the entire chapter. In other words, everything else that Jesus says in this chapter is leading up to the older brother. And I say that for two reasons. First of all, because of who Jesus' primary audience was in Luke 15. And you can see that in the first three verses. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, notice, so he told them this parable. Who is the them? Well, the them in verse 2 
are the scribes and the Pharisees who were grumbling because this man receives sinners and eats with them, right? And so it says, so he told them this parable, the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, the them in verse 3 are the scribes and the Pharisees who had grumbled at Jesus for receiving sinners and for eating with them. And so everything that follows in Luke 15 is directed first and foremost to the scribes and Pharisees. In other words, he directs all of these parables in Luke 15 towards the scribes and Pharisees. And then at the very end, he directly confronts their self-righteousness by casting the older brother as the exact embodiment of their sinful attitude toward Jesus and toward his ministry to the lost. Everything that goes before is leading up to the older brother. The second reason why I think the confrontation between the father and the older brother is meant to be seen as the climax of the chapter is found in verse 3. It says, So he, Jesus, told them, the scribes and Pharisees, this parable, saying, Now, notice how in verse 3 it says that Jesus told the Pharisees and scribes this parable, singular. But then he goes on to tell three parables, right? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. Why does Luke say that Jesus told them this parable when in fact he goes on to tell three parables? And the answer, I believe, is that Luke wants us to view these three parables in Luke 15 not as three separate, disconnected parables, but as one long parable that makes the same basic point several different ways. All three of these parables are meant to be read as one single parable directed to the Pharisees and scribes in order to rebuke them for their self-righteous attitude towards Jesus' ministry to the religious outcasts of society. That's the whole context here. So when the chapter is viewed as a whole, we can see that Jesus is telling a single parable, directing it to the scribes and Pharisees as a rebuke to them and to their attitude towards him. And like any good storyteller, Jesus leaves the climax of the story for the end. And that climax, again, is the confrontation between the father and the older brother. Next, then, on Sunday, we considered four characteristics of the older brother. And I want to go through these briefly because I know there were quite a few people gone on Sunday. So I'll go through these quickly to give a little context here before we get into some new material tonight. So four characteristics of the older brother. First of all, he despised grace. He hated grace. And we can see this in verses 28 through 30. But he became angry. The older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him, but he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. I never disobeyed you. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. In the mind of the older brother, blessing should follow on from obedience. If you obey, you earn blessing. If you disobey, you forfeit blessing. And clearly the prodigal son had disobeyed his father, thus forfeiting any blessing that the father might have given him. It's so obvious, but it's also so unlike the grace of God. 
Now remember here, the father in this parable is representing God. <laughs> what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans eleven six? But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. It can't be on the basis of works. It can't be on the basis of performance. It's not a wage that you can earn. Otherwise, it's not grace. If you can earn it, it's not grace any longer. That's what Paul's saying. Not only does God save people who haven't met the conditions, he saves people who have done nothing but the exact opposite of what the conditions require. He justifies the ungodly. He declares righteous. That's what justifies means. He declares righteous the ungodly. He gives life to the dead. He dies for his enemies. And he loves the utterly unlovely. And he continually blesses his children, imperfect though we continue to be. This is the way that grace operates. And this is the way that grace must operate in order for it to be grace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. (laughs) Right? His grace has no measure. But the older brother would have none of it. In his mind, the father cannot bless the younger son in light of his gross disobedience, which is just another way of saying that the older brother did not understand the meaning of grace. He was a despiser of grace. In fact, grace actually made him angry, which leads into the second characteristic of the older brother here. The second thing was is that he was unable to rejoice when someone else was blessed. Verse 28, he became angry and was not willing to go in and join the celebration. Not only did he think that the younger son should not have been blessed by the father, but he felt like he should have been blessed because of his obedience. So he actually gets mad when the prodigal is blessed instead of him. And as I said on Sunday, I think this is a real test for us as Christians. This is a real test of our heart. How do you respond when someone else is blessed instead of you? Do you find it hard to rejoice with those who rejoice? To the degree that you do, it's because you're still being affected by this performance-based mindset of the older brother, not being controlled by a mindset of grace and love and the mind of Christ. Instead of rejoicing, now get this, instead of rejoicing in how good the father was to so graciously bless the prodigal, The older brother instead focuses all of his attention on how undeserving his younger brother is of receiving grace. He's devoured your wealth. Forfeited blessing. Instead of rejoicing in the goodness of the father, he wants to drive the prodigal into the ground. What the older brother doesn't see is that he himself is just as undeserving of receiving anything good from the father. And we'll get to that later on. And he doesn't understand that the things which the father gave to the prodigal are not meant to highlight the worthiness of the receiver, but instead are meant to highlight 
the goodness and graciousness of the giver. That's what those things are for. That's what blessing does. It doesn't highlight the goodness of the person receiving it. It highlights the goodness of the person giving it. The focus should be on the giver of grace, not the receiver of the blessing. And if we keep our focus on the goodness of the giver, we'll find it much easier to rejoice with those who rejoice. And that is a command of Scripture, right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Thirdly, the older brother had an outward obedience coupled with an inward rebellion. An outward obedience coupled with an inward rebellion. The prodigal son, the younger son, took what he could get from his father and went on a journey into a distant land. But the reality of the situation is that the older brother who stayed home was just as much at a distance from the father as the prodigal son ever was. The difference is that the journey of the older brother took place inwardly, took place in his heart. The older brother never left home, but he stayed so that he could serve his father. Sounds good, commendable. The problem is that he was not serving his father out of love for him, but he was serving his father for what he could get from him. And that comes out in verse 29 again. Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. See, this is brewing there all the time inwardly. And yet, you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. The mindset of the older brother is not that of a son serving his father out of love, but a slave serving a master or an employee serving an employer in order to get something in return. And when he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves, the true condition of his heart is revealed. I mean, how many people, beloved, have we seen this happen to? Grow up in church, serve the Lord, but then somehow they feel slighted. God didn't give me what I deserve, right? I served him all these years, and he didn't give me what was mine, what I deserved, what I earned. And they turn away from the faith. When he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves, the true condition of his heart is revealed. And we find out then that all along he had been serving his father outwardly, while at the same time his heart was on a journey into a distant land. In another place, Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees by quoting from the prophet Isaiah, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Outward, external, honoring, no love. In the heart. And that's a perfect description of the older brother who manifested an external obedience coupled with an internal rebellion from his father. All the time, that was festering there. <laughs> For years, it was festering, but it comes out, you see, when the prodigal returns and the older brother doesn't get what he thinks he deserved all along. Fourth thing we looked at on Sunday, the fourth characteristic of the older brother. He manifested a blindness to his own sin, a complete blindness to his own sin. And again, that we can see this in verses 29 and 30. 
He answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you can hear the anger. It says he was angry. A couple of verses before that, he's angry. He's speaking this. He's mad at his father. He's angry at this point. You see, the older brother had no problem whatsoever pointing out how sinful his younger brother was. And you can see that in verse 30, right? He reminds the father that the prodigal had devoured the father's wealth with prostitutes. Look at how sinful he is. He even distances himself from his younger brother in verse 30. Notice, he doesn't say, when my brother came home. He says, when this son of yours came, distances himself from his younger brother. He's not in the same realm, you see, as the prodigal. He's good. He's moral. He keeps all the rules. But at the very same time that the older son is going off on how sinful his prodigal brother is, his own heart is raging with anger towards the father who has done nothing but demonstrate how gracious he is. You see that? Railing on how sinful the prodigal was, while at the same time anger is just coming out, pouring out of him. Seething, festering there, pouring out of him. Again, the true condition of the older brother's heart is laid bare, and it's not a pretty sight. But he's utterly blind to it and would rather find fault with others than address the obvious wounds festering within his own heart. Bitterness, anger, jealousy. Because he didn't get what he thought he deserved. Well, that's all review then from Sunday. And again, I took a little longer on that because I know we had several people gone. need to lay a little foundation here before we get into anything new tonight. So what I'd like to do then tonight with the rest of our time is just consider a few more lessons, applications, extensions uh, from this account. Some of this I briefly touched on last time, but here tonight I want to kind of crystallize it a little bit, expand on it a little bit this evening. So a few more lessons and applications here from this account of the older brother. First of all, first application that I want to bring out tonight is that older brothers are just as lost and just as much in need of the gospel as prodigals are. Older brothers are just as lost and just as much in need of the gospel as prodigals are. Prodigal sons look more lost on the outside because their rebellion is external and it's obvious to everyone. In Luke 15, the prodigal takes his inheritance, he gets as far away from home as he can possibly get, and he squanders his estate on parties and prostitutes. There was no brokenness over his sin, no real love in his heart for the father he had left behind. And anyone looking at that situation from the outside could see that. It was obvious. He was lost. He was in rebellion. And it was obvious to anyone watching. But the fact of the matter is that the older brother who stayed home and served his father was just as much at a distance as the prodigal ever was. The older brother was just as much in rebellion. 
But it was an internal rebellion. And it was covered over with a thin veneer of self-righteousness and whitewashed outward obedience. But when the prodigal returns home, you see, the truth comes out. And when it does, you see that the older brother has no brokenness over his sin and no real love in his heart for the father either. You see that? At the end of the day, both the prodigal and the older brother are actually in the same boat. Before the prodigal repents, that is. Both equally lost. And maybe you're sitting here this evening and you know you're not a Christian. There's no real concern about your sin. There's no real love for God in your heart. But you comfort yourself with the thought that at least you aren't as bad as so-and-so who is living in open rebellion and doing all kinds of wickedness. Be careful. Do not be deceived. Or maybe you're a parent with two lost children. One is living in flagrant rebellion against you and against God, and the other child is at least externally conforming to your wishes, externally conforming to the Bible. Be careful, because you can begin to think that the one is closer to the kingdom because of his external righteousness. Do not be deceived. Actually, such an external righteousness can often be more of a hindrance to someone getting saved than a life of open rebellion. After all, if you're so good and moral and keep all the rules, you can start to think that you don't even need a Savior. Really. You don't need forgiveness. In fact, if you're honest about it, you kind of feel like God owes you something. Because you're so good all the time. Which is exactly the way the older brother thought. Ultimately, prodigals and older brothers are both equally lost and both as much in need of the gospel. Both as much in need of the good news. Do we view them that way? As individuals, as a church, do we view them that way? Do we pray as frequently and as fervently for the older brothers among us as we do for the prodigals who are off on a journey to a distant country? Are we as zealous to share the gospel with the older brothers in our midst as we are with the prodigals who are gone out there living life in a distant land? See, we can kind of forget These older brothers are amongst us, and we're among them. But because they're outwardly conforming, and they outwardly look good, we can tend to think that things are kind of okay. It's not. They need the gospel. (laughs) They need the good news. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for both kinds of people, for older brothers and for prodigals. For both. The gospel addresses both kinds of sinners. To prodigal sons, the gospel says, no matter what you have done with your life, no matter how disgusting the sins that you've committed, God has made a way for those sins to be completely forgiven and totally washed away if you will only trust in Jesus. Come to him. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll accept you. 
Just come to him. To older brothers, self-righteous, pharisaical, trying to earn God's smile with their performance, the gospel says to them, stop trying to earn God's smile with your obedience. You can never measure up to the perfection of his holiness, but you don't have to. Christ has already earned the blessing of God in your place if you will only come to Jesus. He'll forgive you for that inward rebellion. And he'll give you what you're working so hard to attain but never can. The smile of God. Second lesson I want to bring out tonight from this account is that God is no man's debtor and he will not be manipulated by our performance. The older brother thought he deserved to be blessed by his father because he had served him for so long. He thought he had earned his father's blessing by his obedience, earned God's blessing because I obey all these years, never neglected a command and so on. And many people operate on the same assumption when it comes to their relationship with God, as if God can be manipulated into blessing them because of their performance. God owes me. I've gone to church. I've read the Bible. I've prayed. I've done this. I've done that. God owes me. Even if they don't say it, it's what they're thinking. God owes me. And what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, One problem is that God doesn't merely look on the outside, but on the heart. And if your motivation in doing good is so that you can somehow bribe God later on with your good works, then that wicked motivation totally cancels out any supposed good you might have done. Because you're doing it all for the wrong reasons in the first place. But secondly, God can never be put in your debt in such a way that he owes you anything, because everything comes from him to begin with. Listen to Romans 11, 35 and 36. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? You get that? Who's first given to God that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. You hear what the verse is saying? No one can offer anything to God that didn't actually come from God in the first place. But God, I sold a bunch of my possessions to help feed the poor. I demand a blessing from you. I've earned it. And God says, oh, who gave you all those possessions in the first place? Who gave you the desire to sell all those possessions to feed the poor? Who gave you the strength to carry all those things out to your car? And who gave you the car to carry all of those possessions in so you could go and sell them? But wait, I bought that car with my own money. I earned that money. I earned that by working. And God says, okay, who gave you the strength to go to your job every day? Who causes your heart to beat and your lungs to breathe while you're sleeping at night? so that you can wake up in the morning alive and go to your job and earn that money. You see the point? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And the implied answer, of course, is no one. No one. No one's given anything to God 
that he didn't first give in the first place? No one. No one has ever given anything to God that obligates God to grant something in return. It all comes from him to begin with. He's no man's debtor because it's all his in the first place. He is no man's debtor. Not now, not ever. Now, older brothers, the lost religious person, the older brother, doesn't like this. Because the only reason he is towing the line is because he thinks that he can later on put the squeeze on God and force God to bless him in exchange for his obedience. Such a person is deceived and will be sorely disappointed in the day of reckoning when the filthy rags of his self-righteousness are burned up before the perfect standard of God's holiness. On the other hand, The truth that God is no man's debtor should be extremely liberating to the Christian. Liberating. Because it frees us from feeling like we have to somehow manipulate God with our performance and twist his arm. Far from being manipulated by us in any way, God says in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend, if that, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, performance, but on God who has mercy. It depends on God. And this should be tremendously encouraging to us because it means that when God determines to bless us, nothing can get in the way of it. Nothing. Isn't that what he said? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. When God determines to bless, nothing can get in the way of it. Not only is God not manipulated by our performance, he's not thwarted by our lack of perfect performance either. When he determines to bless... As it says in Daniel, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can. And I like this quote from George Bowen along these lines. He was a missionary to Bombay, India in the 1800s. He said, we are his own, meaning we belong to God. He has set us apart for himself. He has absolute dominion over us and may do what he will with us. There is no one in the universe that can call him to account for any height of blessing or privilege that he may see fit to bestow upon us. He can fill us with all the fullness of God. He can make of us a new sharp threshing instrument and thresh the mountains with us. He can make us sit down upon his own throne and put into our childish hand his own sublime scepter. We are his. And not a tongue in the universe can dare to wag, for we have been bought with a price. You see, when God determines to bless, he's going to bless. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? A couple of more tonight. Thirdly, I want to give an exhortation here to young parents, because I am one. And because I can't help but view the older brother through that lens. And perhaps it's just coincidence, but I find it interesting 
that it's the older brother in Jesus' parable who represents the self-righteous, rule-keeping Pharisee. It's the older brother, the first child, in other words. Is there anything to be learned from that fact? It seems to me that there is. Because when a Christian couple has their first child, that older brother, right, they can sometimes get so caught up in proper training and discipline that they end up almost exclusively focusing on the child's external behavior. As long as the child is obeying and behaving, we think that things are pretty much okay. We've done our job as a parent, right? They're conforming. They're obeying. Not doing wrong, but doing right. Listening to our wishes and so on. And as a result, we can end up raising an older brother who is self-righteous and thinks he is fine because he outwardly keeps all the rules. It's a danger. It's a danger with any child, really, but I think there's a special danger with the first. Because as a new parent, you're so tense about proper obedience, which is important. Rearing your child, child training, discipline, so on. And training and discipline are very important, don't get me wrong, but we need to balance that with an emphasis on the needs of the heart. Not just outward behavior, but the needs of the heart. Remember, the older brother looked great on the outside, (laughs) looked wonderful. I mean, he stayed home, he served his father for years, says he never neglected a command of his, looked great on the outside. It was his heart that was the problem. He was obedient, but for the wrong reasons. He served his father, but without real love for his father. And there ought to come a time with our own children when we start to have talks with them that don't simply address their outward behavior, but also the motivations and desires of their heart. If they disobey, talk about why they disobeyed. And what that says about the state of their heart. If they go on a a winning streak of obedience, find out why. What's motivating that? Is it simply fear of punishment? And if so, what does that say about the state of their heart? Conversations like that are great opportunities to talk about the God who sees and judges, not just external behavior, but the thoughts and intents of our hearts but the God who is also able to forgive our sins and make us clean on the inside and give us new hearts that actually desire to love and obey him, for real, from the heart. So we need to be looking for opportunities to have talks like that with our children as they get older and they can understand those kinds of conversations. Also, we need to be looking for opportunities to teach them grace, and to model for them what grace looks like in action as a means to helping them understand the grace of God manifested in the gospel. The goal is to teach the gospel. But by teaching grace and modeling what grace looks like in day-to-day life, we can hopefully point them to the gospel, which is the manifestation of God's grace. And there's obviously a balance here, but shouldn't we at least, and I'm talking to myself here, believe me, shouldn't we at least put as much thought and effort into how we can teach our children grace as we put into teaching them discipline and rules? 
Shouldn't we at least put as much effort into teaching them the gospel as we put into training and disciplining? Given the performance-based culture that our children grow up in, we can't expect them to learn what grace is from the world. They're not going to. They can't. They're going to have to learn it from us. And we need to be looking for situations and opportunities that would allow us to demonstrate and to teach grace to our children. Now, a point of clarification here, because I think this is commonly misunderstood. Teaching and modeling grace does not mean being permissive, right? Let me illustrate what I mean. Let's say my daughter's room is totally trashed. Clothes, toys, everywhere. You can't even see the floor, which happens. Her room is totally trashed, but she wants to go outside and play. Daddy, can I go outside and play? So I tell her that I'll give her 15 minutes to clean her room, and if she can clean her room within those 15 minutes, then she can go outside and play for the rest of the day. And so I set the timer, 15 minutes, you know, and 15 minutes go by, and I go and I check on her, and lo and behold, she hasn't even started yet, which also happens in our household. Now listen carefully. If I say to her, Oh, honey, just forget it. Go outside and play. Forget about it. I have not taught her grace. What I've taught her is that dad is permissive and doesn't really mean what he says. That's what I've taught her. Okay? You've got to be careful here. But what if I wanted to use that same situation to teach my daughter grace and to point her to the gospel? How could I do it? What I could do is I could explain to her that she blew it and she should not be allowed to go outside. But because I love her and I want her to enjoy the day, I will clean the room for her while she watches because I can do it a lot faster than she can. I'll clean the room for her before she goes outside. And this is important. I will then explain to her what I've done in gospel terms. Because you cannot assume that your child is going to get it. Believe me, I work with 13- and 14-year-olds at the middle school, and they don't get it. Okay, Your child's not going to either when they're younger than that. You've got to explain to them what you've done in gospel terms. And I would explain something like this. I would talk about how she lost out on something good because of her disobedience, but out of love, I paid the price required which was cleaning the room. I did it. I paid the price. I absorbed the cost, you might say, of letting her go outside. I cleaned the room so that she could then enjoy the day. In the same way, we all have lost the blessing of God because of our disobedience. But because God loves us and wants us to enjoy a relationship with him, he sent Jesus to live a life of perfect obedience, and to die on the cross in our place. And by trusting in him, we can enjoy the blessing of God because Jesus paid the price for us. Right? And I know this sounds very academic. I mean, I'm just trying to explain it here. You probably wouldn't put it quite in those terms. But do you see the difference here than simply being permissive? 
It's different because I'm teaching my child that with true grace, with God's grace, with real grace, there is a cost involved. But that the cost is graciously paid by someone else. You see, that's what makes it grace. It's not that you're let off the hook. It's that the cost involved is paid by someone else in your place. Free to you, costly to them. The cost is graciously paid by someone else. The grace of God in the gospel does not mean that God simply winks at our sin and says, no big deal, just go outside and play. The grace of God in the gospel says, your sin is so bad that it deserves an infinite punishment. But out of love, I will absorb that punishment myself so that you don't have to. That's the cross. That's the message we need to try and communicate to our children. Again, not all the time, right? They don't get away with not cleaning their rooms every time. (laughs) Not all the time. And not always in some kind of 45-minute theological discussion. But here and there, you know, as opportunities present themselves, as the Spirit leads and gives direction, as you see this opportunity, it's just a perfect golden opportunity to teach a lesson of grace. Every once in a while you do. And you point them to the gospel, to the cross, to the one who paid the price for them that they could then enjoy the blessing of God. The bottom line is that we need, I need, you need supernatural divine wisdom in the raising of our children, don't we? No matter the outcome, our hope is in the God who is able to give life to the dead, no matter how that deadness manifests itself, whether it's the deadness of a life of gross sin in the distant country or whether it's the deadness of a self-righteous religious life close to home. God was just as able to save the harlot in Luke 7 as he was to save Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of the Pharisees. Regardless of the need, our hope, our trust are in God. Lastly tonight, I went a little long again, longer than I wanted to, I'm sorry. Lastly tonight, number four, God still welcomes older brothers. God still welcomes older brothers. And I want to end here the same place that I ended on Sunday with a reminder that God still welcomes those older brothers. Never forget that the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, the Apostle Paul, started off as an older brother. In fact, you might say he was the older brother of older brothers. God welcomed older brothers then, and he still welcomes older brothers today. Once again, look at the attitude of the father here in this parable toward the older brother. And keep in mind that the father represents God in this parable. First, the father goes out of the house seeking for the older brother and pleads with him to come into the celebration. Verse 28, but he became angry, was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. 
Come in. Join the celebration. There's plenty for you. The party's great. There's dancing. There's food. There's music. Come in. It goes out to him, you see. It goes out to him, seeking him. If you are outside the house of God here this evening, the only thing that keeps you outside is you. That's the only thing. You're not willing to go in. That was the case with the prodigal brother, or I'm sorry, the older brother. It says he was not willing to go in and join the celebration. The only thing that keeps you outside is you. But God is reaching out to you, even tonight, even right now. He comes out to you, pleading with you, come in, join the celebration. There's room for you, too. Again, in the words of Isaiah 55, I think this is such a good illustration of this. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. You don't have to have any money, you see. Not to buy this. It's free for the taking. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Can't you just hear the father speaking these words to the older brother? Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Listen that you may live. Come in, older brother. Come in, son. Join the celebration. And if you feel in these days that God is exposing you as being an older brother, take heart. He only exposes you in order to draw you to himself. That's the only reason why. He comes out to you, seeking you to draw you to himself, to invite you to come. He comes out pleading for you to join celebration. Stop trusting in yourself and in your own supposed goodness and delight yourself in his abundance without money and without cost. Come. That's the message to older brothers. That was the, older, that was the message then. Still the message today. Come in and join the celebration.